On this episode of the Fellowship Podcast by CMF International, we continue our conversation with David Giles, the director of Church Catalyst Ministries. David shares about his life and ministry among the Maasai people, how he was called to serve in missions, how he would constantly question how would Christ be incarnate in this context, and the importance of going to where people are and not expecting them to come to us. I'm your host, Jake Moore. Welcome to the Fellowship. I want to now transition to talking about, okay, 1977, you got to pack a a suitcase Mm -hmm. and you got to get the heck out of there. And suddenly, as a junior getting ready to be senior in Mm -hmm. high school, you're plopped down back in the United States Mm -hmm. and it's looking like you can't go back to Ethiopia. Yeah, Yeah, that was was a difficult transition because you need to pack up, you go, you leave all your high school friends. We went to East Tennessee. uh, I finished up my senior year at um, David Crockett High School, so mm-hmm. it was quite a transition to go from a Christian boarding school that had a pretty high level of education to then go to David Crockett High School in <laughs> Jonesboro, Tennessee. Yeah. And, uh, so that was quite a, a shift and an identity shift as well to go mm-hmm. from you know, having this community, having this place to belong just going into senior year to, you know, having a senior year of place I didn't know. And so it was, did you feel like, some, a, I mean, I mean, it seems obvious mm-hmm. to ask, but like serious fish out of water in a lot of ways. Yeah. I remember thinking, and actually, um, you know, I, we would, we would go to cross country practice. I was going to say that, you know, and then latching onto things that I knew I was good at. Right? So I, I still ran cross country and we'd go in and people would have their, you know, either branded gym bags or their Davy Crockett gym bag. And I had one that said Ethiopian Airlines on it. You know, mm-hmm, I said, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm a kind of a fish out of water here. Yeah. yeah. Um, but we moved down right down the street from uh, the where Linda lived and her family. Ah. So met met her pretty soon at a ripe old age of me 17 and she 15. And, nice. Uh, we got married at 18 and 20 and. Wow. Uh, I think it may work. It's been 41 years. I think so. I think you guys are on the right path. uh, And, um, you know, so uh, sports was one thing, the Christian community. And um, and there's one thing about being involved in the family of God. I've seen over and over again, you know, what it says, whoever leaves family for my sake will receive 100 times in this life and the life to come. And he's Mm -hmm. always provided those people. On the team, we had aunts and uncles, but even during that adjustment back, they were still active, like Phil Edwards and Mick Smith, um, Mm -hmm. still really indebted to people like that. Um, Motorcycles again came in. You know, (laughs) I I had something, no eternal significance whatsoever. Right. But it's just something fun to do and um, something, you know, to to kind of um focus on yeah some people have some people have music your your thing is is mechanics and working on motorcycles and riding motorcycles and that was your thing yeah and it was actually through my cmf uncle mick smith you know how i'd known him in ethiopia he said look Mm -hmm. i'll loan you the money to buy a bike and you can work and pay it off you know wow that kind of stuff and so um finished up senior high school went to milligan 
uh, shout out to Milligan. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then just in terms of my own call, I know you didn't ask this question, but I was getting there. So go for it. Yeah. I, and at that point, I'm not thinking I'm definitely going back to the mission field. Of course, Ethiopia is closed. But um, I think that's where the formative years of going with my dad and seeing here are places that have no gospel, none. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And let's say I went into some kind of vocational ministry here in the U.S., it would be my resume stacked up with a bunch of others, you know, applying mm-hmm. for a job. Mm-hmm. And then it just kind of started to evolve for me. You know, where do I really want to invest, you know, what I've got? And so yeah. uh, that's when, you know, we you know, finished up at Milligan, went to Emmanuel a bit, went to Fuller, kind of at that time, Steam Up is still requiring people to go to Fuller. Did a year's internship, and um, at that time, CMF also required a year internship in a church. It was really formative, um, mm-hmm. working with uh, Westside Christian Church in Wichita, Kansas, Dave McCord being a strong influence, mm-hmm. Phil Haas being a strong influence. Um, and then we left to serve in Kenya among the Maasai for about mm-hmm. eight or nine years, and kind of doing it all over again. Yeah. Well, so yeah, there's, there's so many layers to getting you there. <laughs> so let's, mm-hmm. let's back up just a minute or a bit. Uh, so you, you're like, okay, yeah, I want to step into service with CMF. I want to go to the mission field. Was it a no brainer? Like I want to get to an African context of some sort, or were there discussions like even with CMF mm-hmm. at the time of, Hey, you know, David, where, where would you like to serve? Cause I know mm-hmm. Indonesia was quite prominent at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in, in Mexico was just starting up as well. Okay. So Mexico is starting. Brazil. And then wasn't there talked as well of your parents helping starting maybe an, another work in another location at, at that time somewhere in, yeah. in Africa. Yeah. There was Sudan, but that preceded all that. Um, mm-hmm. That was actually, after Ethiopia, before my dad worked in the office, they were going to go to Sudan, but everything started to fall apart in in that potential. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then he was asked for like the third or fourth time to come and work in the office, and he finally finally succumbed. Yeah, and um, <laughs> moved to work in the office. That would have been about probably seventy seven, seventy eight. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Probably seventy eight. He started working in the office. Okay, and so then. For you, you're you're at college, but you're wrestling with this calling. You're you're seeing missions come in, come into light as the direction that you want to head mm-hmm. in from a ministry standpoint. You're getting directives from CMF, even thinking about master's level work, where where you need to go, what you need to do, mm-hmm. their internship requirement. You and mm-hmm. Linda are a young married couple. Mm-hmm. At what point did Kenya come on the radar then um, was because uh, like I said already, and in, I know Indonesia, you said you mentioned Mexico. Mm-hmm. There are some different fields that CMF is opening up at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wonder like what, what guided you guys uh, and the organization towards Kenya for you as the option uh, for service? Yeah, I think Kenya for me is I thought the, the Africa background would really serve me well in a rural African context. And so I w- really wasn't drawn toward like a, a very highly urban Mexico option. And we actually have really, really good friends and mentors that were moving to Mexico. So it would have been easy to say, let's just go there. Mm-hmm. But, but honestly, Jake, I, I haven't seen a lot of, well, let me put it this way. Sometimes it doesn't go very well if you choose a calling based on 
someone that's there that you what happens if they leave or mm -hmm. what happens mm -hmm. if if tensions arise which they almost always do mm -hmm. um i felt that it would be more prudent to choose based on where where was i better geared for ministry mm -hmm. than than on a personal relationship um, yeah and so uh that that's why kenya started coming more and more to the forefront mm -hmm. for us so then at what what year did you guys you know, get, get going towards Kenya. Were you raising support while you were out mm -hmm. at Fuller, um, doing your internship at, at Westside in Wichita? Yeah. And then, so then after the mm -hmm. end of that in internship, you're headed there and what year or years are we looking at? <laughs> yeah. Graduation from Milligan. Um, we started affiliating probably around 83. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, that was when I was at Emmanuel. Uh, then we headed out to um, internship '84 in Wichita, probably the you know the fall of '83 through the spring of '84, and then we were at Fuller the um, spring of '84 through like March of '85, and then we actually left for the field August of '85. August. Of and a couple of things was as we were doing an internship, we were also building the foundation for support raising. So okay. side got behind us. Mm -hmm. And while we were at Milligan and Emmanuel, we, we decided to go to a church that no one out that, you know, we said, we don't want to go where family is. So we started going to this small country church, Lone Oak Christian Church, and they kind of mentored <laughs> us into ministry, really yeah. indebted to Dave Roberts. What an incredible man of God that had yeah. a lot of influence on me and yeah. CMF. And so when we got ready to go to the field, this little church of 100 people in, in, in East Tennessee said, yeah, well, we'll, we'll have a faith promise for you. I thought, well, that's good. Yeah, but not expecting Fuller, not expecting much no, to and, really come from it. While we're at Fuller, Dave calls and says, well, we had faith promise. Um, he said, we didn't meet our goal of, I can't remember what it was. Is we didn't meet our goal of $15,000. We hit $23,000 or something what? like that. Yeah, so, <laughs> and back then, total oh, budgets yeah. were like 40 grand a year. Sure. That was back in the Stone Age. And so... Yeah. This little church in East Tennessee gave us two thirds of our support the entire time wow. we served. So it's kind of like we were their staff overseas and That's such awesome. an encouragement to us. Even when I wanted to give up and quit sometimes, I thought, man, I can't do that to Lone Oak. <laughs> They're <laughs> counting on us. I got to stay. I got to hang in there. Yeah. Um, you know, so. I, I have said many times uh, to other young missionaries that are coming along the track or even talking to teammates that as grueling as the support raising process is, having i don't envy missionaries who don't have to raise support because of the fellowship mm -hmm. of believers that support team that comes alongside you you feel loved and cared mm -hmm. for more than uh than i think other folks do and then also like you highlighted you feel super accountable for what you're doing oh, yeah. every day or even your mindset going into work you're like mm -hmm. okay yeah dave dave roberts mm -hmm. and the lone oak folks are expecting me to Mm -hmm. Stick it out. So I better stick it out even if I don't feel like doing it today. <laughs> mm -hmm. Kenya kind of becomes this natural thing. And I, I love your your thought of just like, you know, this is where your gifting, your passions mm -hmm. all kind of line up uh, really well with along with what CMF has a desire to go and start among the Maasai. Where within the team, did you guys fall? Were you some of the first people to go in and work with the Maasai a couple years in to a ministry that had been mm -hmm. started? I'd love to know mm -hmm. 
what what it looked like in 1985 for you guys to land on the ground in Nairobi and then mm -hmm. from there how things yeah. off. Um, some of the first that were there, you know, left from Ethiopia and went there, like Bob and Karen Chapman moved and, and were working up in northern Kenya at the time. And then some others were getting there around early 80, early 80s. So we were not the first there, but we were kind of on the middle of the first wave, you know, that went. Um, mm -hmm. So um, it, it was pretty early in a pioneer work. And, and so... Um, the work was still just getting started. And there'd been work among the Maasai for some time, but we were committed to doing a very contextual, um, right. incarnational type ministry that would hopefully lead to, you know, it growing from within and multiplying, which, which right. it did. Right. Um, and so we were a part of that early, early, um, uh, yeah, so you're you're referring to like the Anglican Church through the British Empire, maybe mm -hmm. made some attempts with the Maasai, mm -hmm. but it was like you already mentioned more of the imperialistic mindset of like you put a shirt on, you you come to this mm -hmm. building, you cross yourself if you mm -hmm. want to be a part of this this, and you guys working within the context and framework of the Maasai people said, no, that's mm -hmm. not that's not what God's expecting. Uh, and, and, yeah. And some of it was just, there was caught, you know, if you want to become a Christian, you have to do this, this, and this, and this. Mm -hmm. And and none of those things are really essential for salvation. We backed it up and said, we want to introduce you to the person and work of Jesus Christ so that you can have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And then the Holy Spirit in you, working with his presence in the word can then transform you into not, you know, the you know, some other cultural expression of Christianity, but right. your own, you know, as Rubel Shelley says, it's, the question is, is how would Christ be incarnate in this situation? It's the it's second incarnation. What would the church look like here? Mm -hmm. What would Christ incarnation really look like in this context? And of course, over time, it's evolved to look a lot like other churches within Kenya. But at that point, there weren't really growing and thriving churches in Maasai. Mm -hmm. And so this strategy really proved to um, kind of, you know, have some breakthroughs that um, I think led to a lot of growth and multiplication within Maasai. Yeah. And now, that same yeah, there. absolutely. Well, and that's what I was going to ask. How did it, so you knew Kenya, mm -hmm. that, that was going to be the place where you and Linda would go and serve. Mm -hmm what was the deciding factor, especially if the Chapmans are up in northern mm -hmm. northwest Kenya working with the Turkana people mm -hmm. and then simultaneously things are starting to happen with the Maasai? How did you pick between the two uh, or where did the discussions go that led <laughs> towards not going uh, to Turkana land and ending yeah. up in, in Maasai? Well, actually, we uh, uh, then we started out initially in Turkana. You know, oh, okay. Brief, yeah. So actually, now I remember um, you saying that. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and that was actually, it was kind of a, it was the, it was the, um, it was the right decision to make a transition, but it was a painful uh, decision. Mm -hmm. And so we moved to Turkana and started settling in and it didn't take long to find out it really wasn't going to work for us as a family. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so, you know, kind of the decision that, that I was facing is, Hey, we, we can, we can continue to push forward here probably on a limited timeline or we can make some adjustments mm -hmm. that can lead to a, a longer timeline. Mm -hmm. And we had just started in Turkana, so we didn't have a lot invested in language. And okay. Some. Mm -hmm. 
And so we made the decision to transition. And, and I think it, it played out that we ended up with, with more time than we would have if we'd stayed yeah. in Turkana. Yeah. I'm guessing one aspect of that was just the brutal heat and dust of Turkana. It's, like, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's rural, it's rough in Maasai land, but it's not, it's not scorching, yeah. melt your flesh hot. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's some stuff in Turkana that are kind of endearing actually. Yeah. yeah. yeah so um, it's just a different kind uh, of situation. Mm-hmm. And um, just for us, if we were going to stay there long, longer, um, we needed to make some changes. Yeah. And we made them. And uh, I think, I think it worked out. Um, so shifting down to painting a, a mental picture of what Kenya looks like for folks mm-hmm. that are listening to this podcast. You know, if, if Kenya is shaped roughly like a large square or, or maybe mm-hmm. a rectangle, Nairobi is actually at the bottom of mm-hmm. the, the capital of, of Kenya is at the bottom of the square. Mm-hmm. And then in the top left corner of the square is kind of this mm-hmm. Turkana area that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Maasai people though, don't live up near that area. They live down in the bottom left corner, mm-hmm. kind of west of Nairobi. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of, that's the section of the country that you were kind of located in? Yeah. Uh, Maasai are actually all along the South and those pockets that go up a little bit. Um, and, CMF ended up focusing more in uh, the Kajiado district and the Narak district, mm-hmm. which were kind of on the directly south of Nairobi and then okay. southwest of Nairobi. And then there was the Oloi Tokotok district, which was mm-hmm. more toward Mombasa. We didn't work yeah. much there. Yeah. Well, I think of you as a bit of a language <laughs> savant. <laughs> and, uh, and some of that is a testament to even mm. just your dad's uh, hard work and faithfulness to that. And again, the, the example he showed you of putting in the hard work of learning another language in order to contextualize the gospel into that context. So I know that was playing in your mind and then being a kid on the mission field, language is all over the place. And so it, it's building bridges within your mind of kind of figuring out how to put mm-hmm. together language and learning another language mm-hmm. as a kid helps set yourself up for learning language as an adult, all that stuff we've mm-hmm. heard, but what did language learning look like for you in Maasai? What, mm-hmm. what was your weekly daily rhythm? Like, mm-hmm. uh, uh, did you go to a school? Was there a school at the time? What, what did that aspect of, of life and ministry look like for you in that first year, uh, mm-hmm. moving into the Maasai area? Yeah, at that time, CMF was greatly influenced by the work of Tom and Betty Sue Brewster. So we used the LAMP approach, language, language acquisition made practical, where it emphasized uh, language and culture learning and it emphasized bonding. In other words, moving into a community as isolated as you could be from other expats, find someone that spoke English and Maasai, and then... Um, uh, take an approach that focuses on learning a little bit every day and practicing with a lot of people. Uh, and in language learning, there's, uh, there is um, proficiency. That's how much you know, but there's also fluency. That's how well you say it. And mm-hmm. LAMP focuses on fluency early and building proficiency as you go. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the learning cycle first day. Hello, my name is David. I'm trying to learn my side. That's all I can say goodbye. Put it on loop tape. So and you and then you go out and say with as many people as possible. Mm-hmm. And if they start rattling off, this is all I can say goodbye. Next day, <laughs> I learn a little bit. I practice with a lot of people. 
you know, just so like mm-hmm. to say goodbye and you're always building on it and you're always building uh, proficiency and fluency and getting out in the community. See, the language learning is a social activity, not an academic activity. It's not mm-hmm. that there's no work to it. It's not that we don't have to study because in addition to the, to the, to the um, language route and learning the phrases, I was studying a grammar book. I was studying the dictionary. I was studying everything I could get my hands on. Um, but um, we tend to make it an academic activity rather than social. Mm-hmm. Like I learned Amharic by playing with Ethiopians. I didn't learn mm-hmm. it by doing it academically. And right. so there, there's a lot of value in this LAMP approach if you're dedicated to it. It's not easy. I mean, it's difficult, but I absolutely loved it. And I still yeah. love it. Get back to Maasai. I access those Maasai database in there <laughs> and then just have a riot. It's a lot yeah, of fun. Yeah. Now, you've shared with me before, but and you mentioned this with your dad's model of language learning, but he did a lot with learning cultural stories. Mm-hmm. Um, what did that look like for you with, with the Maasai? And am I correct? Maasai, mm-hmm. it, they don't call their language Maasai. They call it Ma. Is that correct? Yeah, because yeah. Maasai means speakers of Ma. So okay. the language is Ma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we spend a lot of time just learning. And part of that's based on the principle that we don't take God there. God takes us there and God's been there before us. And if we start mm-hmm. to look within their cultural systems, their stories, their proverbs, you know, we're going to see footprints of God. And so I spent a lot of time learning their stories, proverbs, mm-hmm. riddles, um, and would use those in teaching, you know, to mm-hmm. kind of get the get them to perk their ears up and then to kind of make mm-hmm. a bridge. And there's some things within their traditional stories and proverbs that are a good bridge that you can build on. And some things that really don't um, uh, have the same view of God that we would find in, in, in the mm-hmm. Bible. And so some you can use and some you have to try to, to work through. And you might say there. something along the lines of this is how you view this is how I understand you viewing God Mm -hmm. or a spirit. And, Mm -hmm. but this is what the Bible shares with us about how to view God and the spirit. So you, you're saying you would counter maybe their story with a biblical story. And then other times it would be in a redemptive analogy that you could draw direct parallel. uh, Yeah. Or there will be a story that kind of ends with something that's incomplete. And if you could say, you know, I can tell you the rest of that story, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and this is the rest of that story. And that's what I'm here. It's kind of like what Paul did in Athens. What's interesting, if you look at Paul, everywhere he went, he went first to the synagogue and he started mm-hmm. with the Jewish history. But when he went to Athens, he wasn't with around Jewish influence, but he started with their history of an unknown God. Yeah. So, but then he filled in a gap. Let me tell you who that unknown God is. So sometimes you can tell the story and not really counter it, but there may be a gap in there and say, hey, I can tell you the rest of that story. And here it is. Yeah. Uh, it's so powerful. It's so powerful to think about the ways that, again, in God's faithfulness and taking you to that place mm-hmm. that he starts open, opening up and revealing mm-hmm. to you, if you're willing to learn language mm-hmm. and culture, within those frameworks where you can speak in uh, the mm-hmm. gospel into those situations. It's, it's pretty amazing. And everybody has their, you know, right after language, I just jumped in. It was sink or swim. I'm going to mm-hmm. do this. And mm-hmm. so initially writing everything out, pretty laborious. 
Um, and, and, I, and then, you know, I was learning the language the whole time I was there making notes. I've got notes in my work journals, you know, every day of learning new things, but everybody has their language faux pas. So uh, <laughs> early in language, making routes. And there was this old lady that used to come and sit on a veranda and hospitality is really huge for them. Yeah. So I said, we would make tea and I'd visit with the lady. I said, she's going to drink my tea. I'm going to practice language. You know, right. and we were doing language in this little community. And so um, it was a community that already had a church building in it. And um, so I was practicing, practicing language and I pointed to the church building and I said what I thought was the word for church. And what I didn't realize, I mixed up some consonants and I was saying the word for breast. <laughs> and uh, I did that a couple of times and this old lady finally reached in, pulled out her breasts and said, this is the breast, that's the church. Oh <laughs> my gosh. Church. And oh. I thought, boy, that was an illustration and I never yeah. forgot to use the right term after that. Yeah, you will never funny. forget the difference yeah. between the two. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, yeah, body of Christ takes on a different, different <laughs> connotation there. Oh, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Go downhill from here. Yeah, exactly. Uh, wow. Wow, that is so funny. Well, also thinking about just cultural stuff. So mm-hmm. you grew up around the Gumus people who mm-hmm. are you know, I've described as kind of more agrarian, maybe semi-nomadic. Mm-hmm. The cattle are a big deal to them, but they live in one place. Mm-hmm. Ma- Maasai people, not so much, right? I mean, they're they're kind of more like semi-nomadic, but mm-hmm. less on the agrarian side, from what I understand. Is that is that a good assessment? Yeah, um, not very agrarian at all, not farmers at all. In fact, they look down on farmers and say that if you dig the earth, it's a sin and so mm. on. They also believe traditionally that all cattle in the world were given to them. So if they take them from somebody else, they're just claiming what was theirs. <laughs> and the they're divine place. right, right? Um, and the semi-nomadic, um, first of all, as um, population increases and land decreases, that's becoming less and less. But even when we lived there, the semi-nomadic came into effect depending on the rains. Like if the rains were better in another place, they would probably send some of the men and the cattle to a new place and sometimes even carve in a new little village out of a, or a Paramangat, a temporary village, mm-hmm. um, you know, out on a plain where they, so they, some of the people and the cows might be semi-nomadic um, while, you know, they might keep, you know, you know, a wife and some kids at, you know, kind of a home place. Yeah. So, with that in mind, as you're thinking about coming out of language studies and heading into more full-time preaching and teaching, mm-hmm. you know, you had the framework with the gumus of they're gone all day working in their fields. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you saw your dad then shifting his framework for when he's going to be preaching and teaching in the evenings mm-hmm. when people are back home, or maybe like we've talked about with Craig and Allison mm-hmm. our, in our own ministry in Ethiopia, early mornings prior to people mm-hmm. leaving what did that look like for you and kind of your rhythm of ministry and life with the Maasai? I mean, are they yeah, around or are there certain times that the mm-hmm. cattle are around the house? And so you have the young warriors and other mm-hmm. people around, like what, what did that look like? Cause it wasn't exactly like I'm guessing what you saw mm-hmm. going on with the Gumus people and your dad. Yeah. Very different. Um, and so it depends like sometimes a year if, um, you know, if it were suddenly start raining or something like that, there would be times where it'd be 
difficult or, or it was really dry. But it was kind of uh, the opposite with the gumus, and that would be that in the morning when the cattle were still at the village being milked, being checked out and all that, the, the, everyone's pretty busy. Then you move toward the middle of the day and, uh, you know, the younger guys would be out shepherding, but a lot of the men would be around. And then toward the evening, as the cows come back in the same thing, once all everything's buttoned up, um, you know, I used to spend a night in the week in the village and this was sleeping on a, uh, a cow hide over sticks. So it wasn't really sleeping. It was uh, kind of <laughs> staying in the village overnight and not being able to sleep. Yeah. And then so, so there was some good teaching time in the evenings, but mm -hmm. during the day while the cattle were out. Um, and then, um, you know, we ultimately wanted complete families, um, you know, to come to know the full life that they could have in Jesus. But because it's a patriarchal society, we wanted to work through the men as gatekeepers. So, um, Generally, when we go to teach in a village, we want to make sure that some of the men were there. So we wanted to go at a time when we knew we could get men. We knew yeah. if we could get men, the women and kids would follow mm -hmm. because that was just the way things in uh, that cultural framework. In right. that cultural framework. So, so that was kind of the daily rhythm. So be teaching more toward the middle of the day and sometimes just going where they were, mm -hmm. you know, rather than expect them to come where we were. And then my weekly schedule was, you know, like Monday was office day and lesson preparation. Tuesday, I would go to Amara and sometimes Al Turkel, and I would teach there. Wednesdays, I would go to the villages around in Donjarenka, right there where we live. Thursday, I would go to Mbiten and Gurgurin or Lesere and do three different teaching points. Friday, I would go to Talak, which is a little bit further away, do teaching, maybe spend the night. Saturday was an off day. And then Sunday I would visit one of the places. And, mm -hmm. you know, when you're working with like 10 different church plants at the same time, it forces things to happen on their own. So if we had just done one church plant with me up in front all the time, it would have been dependent on me, but doing 10 at right. the same time, you know, it was, it was pouring into leaders then that would lead. And I say pouring into leaders, even in a patriarchal society, some mm -hmm. of our key leaders were women. Mm -hmm. But they did it under the the um, affirmation and approval of the elders. Right. And so some of the key leaders in some of the places were women. And so working with those that were uh, ones that could carry things forward, um, you know, so that when Sunday came around. Right. They could have a very simple service. You but know, this is, that accelerated. It really accelerated the concept that the gospel is fits within their cultural framework and then accelerated mm -hmm. this self-replicating aspect of disciple making or a church planning movement there by, again, like you said, mm -hmm. you not being the great white savior preaching mm -hmm. to everybody, but actually yeah. just almost overseeing mm -hmm. uh, the, mm -hmm. the, the fruit of the spirit working in that community or in all of those communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, meeting out of the trees, communion. We say we use what you have. If it's uh, just black tea, meaning there's no milk in it, and mm -hmm. some chapati or something, you know, do that. You mm -hmm. shouldn't be held up because of lack of availability of something. Jesus used what was right in front of him, and we mm -hmm. can use what's right in front of us as well. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. Thinking about Ethiopia, but also thinking about Kenya and those those early days you mentioning food i'd love to hear <laughs> what are what are 
what was the best thing that you ate in either of those countries and what was the absolute roughest thing and maybe it's different it's not across the board yeah. the same problem yeah. it might be two different rough things in ethiopia and one thing in uh, in kenya mm. i'd love to know <laughs> well ethiopia was good food i mean i love chumbo out in oromo and of course i love in Jaranwat that you get all over mm -hmm. and it was kind of a step down to go to maasai where mm. you, for them if the rains are good you got sour milk um, mm. and it's clabbered milk you know and they would shake up the gourd and then the, sometimes they would stir it up and then you <sighs> drink that down sometimes it go in lumps you know <laughs> oh that's um, so rough yeah. i think in Maasai, the thing i really liked the most probably was if there was if the rains were good and there was a lot of milk and a really good tea with a lot of that really and and their their milk has a high cream content mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. a good cup of tea with a lot of milk the worst yeah. thing i had in Maasai, you go to goat roast and you know meat roast weren't so bad and even the imonono which was the guts mixed with mm -hmm. blood that went so oh. bad but one time in a dark night said here eat this and it was a raw kidney oh. and it tasted like what it filters if you know what i'm talking oh, about man. and i was thankful that it was a dark night so that raw <laughs> kidney was thrown to the side and yeah something some, ate it but not some me. dogs probably got it at that point yeah <laughs> oh yeah uh yeah i don't envy you for eating raw kidney that sounds pretty nasty man yeah it was and and yeah. the ma the maasai also do a lot with blood correct yeah they do um but it's not like it's a main part now when they slaughter a cow or a goat they keep everything mm -hmm. um but and then while they're slaughtering, you know, the guys will line up and drink a little bit of the blood. You know, they cut the dewlap out and let the blood pool there. And I've done that before just to say I did it. Um, yeah. But really, um, the only time they actually, like, draw the blood by shooting one of the veins is, is in key ceremonies and key times like that. Mm -hmm. um, but when they slaughter a, a cow, they, they use everything, including it, Literally every aspect yeah. of the animal. Yeah, it's definitely, it's a different context than been slaughtering for our ancestors as it is than mm -hmm. using every element of the animal. Where are your kiddos uh, in this, this whole <laughs> yeah. uh, layer of things? Because yeah. I kind of want to touch back on the mm -hmm. third culture kid, missionary mm -hmm. kid aspect and being a parent now. So you've yeah. transitioned mm -hmm. to serving as a CMF missionary. You're with the Maasai people. You and Linda are together there and you have some kids come along the way. Where, where are they at? Uh, where, where are Jamie and Adam and Megan at, uh, in the mix as, as you're stepping into language and everything else? Yeah. Uh, stepping into language, it was just Jamie and, uh, and Adam and Megan was born after, after language. So she, was born there and it was interesting we did a naming ceremony for her just like we would for the, like the maasai would you know mm -hmm. wore the cow skins and let the maasai give her a maasai name we all have maasai names and yeah so um they actually loved it i mean um had a really good relationship they have friends maasai friends um they go spend the night in the village with some of the guys that work in our house i love doing that um mm -hmm. We uh, homeschooling started a little bit of that, but then we had some teachers come and help us. We also had Jamie going to boarding school, third, fourth, and fifth grade. Ooh, you know? 
That's pretty early um, on, man. Yeah. Yeah. One day I was, uh, when our granddaughter turned 10, I was getting kind of melancholy. No, she, our granddaughter was turning eight and I was getting real melancholy. I was having my quiet time and praying. And, mm-hmm. and I just messaged Jamie. I said, Oh, yeah, Jamie, I was just thinking this was the age went off to boarding school. And she said, Dad, I am so thankful for all of my upbringing. It has made me who I am today. And I'm thankful for it. It kind of ruined my melancholy moment there. Uh, Oh, okay. Uh, She said, I don't regret it a bit, you know? Um, And, you know, they were there and go, I go spend the night in the village. A lot of times Adam would go with me and absolutely loved it. Um, Mm -hmm. And again, choosing what's best for them educationally. So for Jamie, um, she really enjoyed Boarding school was upset when she couldn't continue, and we came back to the states. And mm-hmm. um, and then, of course, Megan wasn't in in school yet. But Adam, we had someone come and help help teach yeah, teach yeah. him. So. And so you you had been given the example of your dad walking places and doing ministry. Mm-hmm. And did you try to replicate that some with with your kiddos, or how did that look? Or mm-hmm. because it was a patriarchal society where there's some reservations and having Jamie go along with you, but it was kind of more mm-hmm. okay for, for Adam to tag along. What did that look like? Yeah, Adam just tagged along more because he just loved it. First of all, he loved riding on the motorcycle. He would just hop on there with me and go. Um, and he also liked riding in the vehicle. So Adam went with me more than and some of the other kids would. And sometimes we went as a whole family. Of course, on Sunday, we all went as a family mm-hmm. and we would participate in the local worship services. Um, mm-hmm. and with them. Um, yeah. So then going into the rhythms uh, of family life, what did mm-hmm. that look like uh, for you? And I'd like to, maybe to highlight what were the things that were life giving to you during that, that those periods? And then mm-hmm. what was maybe life draining and you can mm-hmm. start with either one, but thinking about <laughs> thinking about yeah. like for, for your family, mm-hmm. when did it feel like you guys were thriving um, and, and mm-hmm. were working through challenges? And then where were the times when it felt like the, the challenges were things you needed to lean on teammates uh, for? Mm-hmm. I I'd, I'd think that would be really helpful to hear. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think the rhythm for family is, um, you know, of course, being where the only meals you ate were ones that you prepared yourself from scratch. We had um, every breakfast and every supper together as a family. And then once, you know, once the cows were in the village, you know, and the wild animals out, you know, we would be there in the evening. Uh, Did much less, you know, just going out from you know, our house there in the evening, unless I was spending the night in the village. So, so we got some good family time there as well as trying to plan, you know, ways to get away within the context, um, whether it be going for a picnic, um, whether it be, uh, I mean, there's just crazy stuff like <laughs> an elephant got speared, you know, and so we what? took our kids to see it, you know, yeah. and, uh, and so they enjoyed walking up the trunk, getting out on the leg, jumping up oh on it, bouncing gosh. off of it, you know, uh, just finding fun things to do, picnic. There were some uh, game lodges within, you know, a couple hours drive. And so sometimes mm-hmm. they would go and hang out there while I went and taught and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, uh, I would say there weren't, we were always kind of, uh, I wouldn't say leaning on teammates, but, our, but 
certain teammates were always a source of strength, encouragement. And that just doesn't mean they said what we wanted to hear. It's also times saying things we really didn't want to hear and giving us yeah. feedback that we would yeah. prefer not getting, but we probably needed to get. So yeah. uh, leaning on teammates and some in particular that were closer than others. Um, it's kind of a band of brothers effect. When you go through something, doing something difficult together, there's a mm -hmm. bond that develops that's really hard to replicate. Um, yeah. So the, the, the most life-giving thing just to me was to be able to go and teach in Maasai in an appropriate way and just really get in the sense that they're, they're getting this, they're following and seeing it, it, it put into practice in the lives of these believers and new, new leaders that were developing. And, um, and I could give stories, but um, the thing that was most draining, I think, actually, was just the constant demands. Um, mm. you know, we were the only vehicle for hours. And so anything came up everywhere I went. They knew where I was going before I knew where I was going. <laughs> and they would be they would be asking for rides. Any need, they would initially come to us. So whether it was medical, mm. food, money. And so it was just a constant uh, request, um, yeah, 24 seven. Yeah. And so trying to find that balance of when, when can you mm -hmm. help, when should you help and when can you say no, uh, that, that the mental gymnastics, yeah. uh, can get exhausting mm -hmm. uh, on, on that side. It can be draining. Yeah, it can be. And, and learning how to, sometimes we can give, but if we give to everybody what they ask, um, and as Jesus said, give to everyone who asks, he didn't say give to everyone who asks what they're asking for, <laughs> but we can give them some time. We can give them gentleness. We can give them a smile, you know, we can give them hospitality, but we may not be able to give them the thousand shillings they're asking for, you mm -hmm, know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, but that constant, uh, request was pretty draining. Yeah. And how many years did you end up spending as a family serving with the Maasai people? Oh, got there in 1985, six, six years, six, six years. Yeah. Looking at those six years with the mm -hmm. Maasai and then looking at the close to what, eight, eight, nine years in Ethiopia, mm -hmm. uh, as a missionary kid, I'd love to know from both cultures or both frameworks mm -hmm. what are some things that you learned uh from ethiopians and what are some things that you mm -hmm. learned from kenyans mm -hmm. that maybe still inform you to this day whether that be on the faith side of things mm -hmm. or just cultural mm -hmm. mindsets i'd love to hear you mentioned hospitality uh, already a couple times oh, yeah. just kind of wondering about that so ethiopia is there anything that carries through it's a through line for you and then kenya yeah. is there any through lines I think uh, I'll start with Kenya, just in terms of uh, hospitality and really grappling through communicating, um, you know, the Bible and the New Testament and another culture brings it to light for our own. I mean, I learned as much as I've taught as mm. we're grappling through different, different things. Um, Ethiopia, I think it was the faithful dedication of some of the believers who are willing to um, to carry the faith and live it, even in the midst of opposition, which wasn't just why we were there, but then even carried over into, um, you know, during the communist revolution, some of those that just were stalwarts for the faith in the midst of persecution. And what an incredible tes testimony and testament that was. Um, 
So I think that's what I learned from uh, some of the, uh, the the key Ethiopian yeah. uh, believers. Well, thinking now about where you're at as a grandparent now of missionary kids, mm -hmm. any words of advice or thoughts for those grandparents that are out there, either that mm -hmm. were missionaries themselves mm -hmm. or that just have missionary kids uh, mm -hmm. as grandkids? I'd love to hear your thoughts, uh, any advice that you might share <laughs> with some of the folks that are oh. maybe supporters that have, that have yeah. kids that are serving with CMF and are listening uh, mm -hmm. to this episode today. Yeah, that's really good. First of all, make the most of it. Uh, don't say my kids are overseas. I'm out of the picture. Get in the picture as much as you can. And today's world is a lot different with um, being able to video chat mm -hmm. and things like that, send gifts and, and letters and, and all that. So stay in the picture as much as possible. Um, uh, and think about the, um, the bigger, um, the bigger picture and the long term and what God's doing. And it seems like when it comes to God's call and God's mission, we say, you know, it's fine for people to go and sacrifice so long as it doesn't cost me. And Oswald Chambers says if people are really called to be involved in God's mission and they're really passionate about it, it doesn't cost them that much, but it's going to cost their families and their loved mm. ones an awful lot. And so uh, for um, like when we felt called to go to Kenya it was hard to be away from family, but I understand more now what sacrifice really the kids' grandparents made being away. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, you know, with my son and his family, they, they feel passionate about being there. But, you know, I can feel what, <laughs> what our kids' sure. grandparents felt and just remind me that it's, it's, for, it's for a purpose. Mm -hmm. It's to help accomplish God's mission. And I've just seen over and over again, when we try to engineer certain outcomes, sometimes we don't get it. But when mm. we truly trust God with outcomes, you know, he, we cannot give him. Yeah. Amen. Well, as we're approaching the end of our time together, uh, one thing I like to ask people that uh, share their life and ministry stories with me is words of advice to that young missionary back in 1985, uh, that young missionary or maybe a missionary that's getting ready to strike out uh, and start a new ministry or do something new with CMF. Words of advice thoughts, uh, things you would have said to yourself mm -hmm. <laughs> back then, um, you know, <laughs> almost 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to hear any of your thoughts on that. Um, and I, I know that maybe would serve as either an, er an encouragement or a challenge mm -hmm. uh, to some of our folks that are listening today. Yeah, I think one thing is trust God with the outcome. And again, go back to the um, agricultural metaphors that Jesus told is there was the responsibility of the, the farmer to sow, to tend, to watch, to wait, to pray, to do our mm -hmm. part, mm -hmm. but to trust God with the outcome. And, and, and in God's kingdom, we can't be judging by what we see in the immediate. Mm -hmm. We have to be willing to work and see the results. Like the whole Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews 11, it talks about all these incredible sacrifices. And so none of them experience what they, and you go, yeah. man, that, that sounds like a, that doesn't sound like a happy ending, <laughs> but, but in God's kingdom, mm -hmm. he will bring to fruition in his time. So uh, 
you know, work, work hard, you know, with make every effort, you know, using the gifts you have uh, to sow faithfully and to be a faithful steward, but don't get too hung up with what you're seeing right in front of you. Cause you don't know mm-hmm. when God's going to bring it to, to fruition. So look at things from a long-term perspective as one of my professors, Bobby Clinton used to say, um, and, um, uh, the destination is the journey. Uh, how you go about things sometimes is important as what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, as um, uh, someone said, the task within the task, what we do when we do what we do sometimes is more important than what we do. So how we go about things mm-hmm. is it done in the, the spirit of Christ in a way that honors him while we work for his, his we do his work for his glory, for his outcome. It's not about us. It's about him and his kingdom. Man, amen. I absolutely love love every aspect of what you're saying. If you are listening to this podcast right now, you need to pause, rewind, and re-listen to those all the the whole episode. Uh, I, I always feel like you you have so much wisdom and insight, uh, but especially those last words of advice uh, or things that I need to be living out daily in my pursuit of Jesus. And uh, I appreciate you sharing this time with us, David, and sharing uh, about your ministry and even your mindset uh, towards ministry. Uh, I'm definitely uh, a product uh, of that, of your mentorship and guidance uh, in my my walk with Jesus and in my pursuit in ministry. And I'm grateful for you and your legacy of faith um, and just really the stream uh, of the legacy of faith that you stand in uh, from your parents and and moving forward now with your grandkids uh, being Mm -hmm. part of God's work around the world. Thank you for this time, uh, and we are so grateful for you and your leadership uh, within CMF, David. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, Jake, and it's just a blessing to serve with, with CMF and just so many good folks. Um, you know, of course, you and Aaron being a big part of that, and uh, the missionaries that I have the privilege of working with, people in the office, uh, God just blesses with good people, and, and we want to... We want to be faithful stewards of what he's given us so that we can see his kingdom grow and expand around the world. Amen. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Fellowship Podcast. Please, if you don't mind, take a moment to like, review, and subscribe to the Fellowship wherever you listen to podcasts. This will give other folks the opportunity to connect with and learn about what God is doing through CMF and how they too can be a part of God's kingdom building work around the world.